96-7W. Classified top secret subject is... Hey, kids! Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Lovelies, and welcome back to Hey Kids Comics, knee deep in Spider-Man month. This week, we'll be looking at some of the Spider-Man comics that have spared... Good start, Andrew. This week, we'll be looking at some of the Spider-Man comics that have spun out of the original amazing title, and how the approach to these books have changed over the years. I'm Andrew Leyland. And I'm Michael Leyland. Uh, and I've just started with a cold and a cough, which I, I can barely contain my euphoria over. No, you can't contain your cough. Uh, oh yeah, I'm going to call. I, I have one pretty much every day of my life. You didn't have one when we were aware. No, I did though. Anyway, Spider-Man's popularity really took off in the mid to late 60s with the character superseding the original Marvel flagship characters, the Fantastic Four, thanks in no small part to the late 60s cartoon. You remember that? Spider-Man. Oh yeah, Spider-Man. Remember the late 60s cartoon? Whatever a spider can. Did the Fantastic Four have a late 60s cartoon? Do you know? I don't remember. I don't think they did. I remember Herbie the Robot one. Yeah, the 90s. And in the 90s one, yeah. Just call for four. Remember that one. But anyway, we're not talking about the Fantastic Four. Uh, We're talking about Spider-Man, who became a bit of a cult figure in college campuses around the US at this time. And on the 30th of September 1972, Spider-Man, along with the Incredible Hulk and the Fantastic Four, launched the first Marvel UK weekly comic, The Mighty World of Marvel. Still gets published today, that, doesn't it? Mighty World of Marvel. Featuring a new cover by John Buscema, it featured a free Hulk iron-on t-shirt transfer. Booyah! Now what I'm going to do is go out and buy a t-shirt. Yes. But by the 10th of February 1973, Spider-Man had spun off into his own magazine, Spider-Man Comics Weekly, making it the first long-running Spider-Man spin-off title. That's an interesting distinction to So it's only a spin-off because it has a different title? Yeah, it's not called the... They should have just called it the Amazing Spider-Man. Okay. That would have been quite good. Being weekly which all of our comics were, meant that Marvel UK would soon run out of content, and Spider-Man strips started being split into three parts, with Iron Man added to the comic alongside the already existing Thor as a backup strip. In the US, Marvel had realised that Spider-Man was more than popular enough to sustain two magazines, and in December of 1971 launched Marvel Team-Up. Team-Up lasted for 150 issues, but for a long time was the bastard offspring of the Spider-Man books, with little or no attention paid to continuity between the titles. When Jim Shooter came on board in the late 1970s, early 80s, this was changed and there was a concentrated effort to coordinate the books for the better. Whilst Team Up and other ancillary books still told one or two issue stories, there was an effort to marry up the events of one book with another. I started picking up Team Up in about 1981. The first issues I remember buying in the second-hand book show in Blackpool that I've mentioned before were issues 65, 66 and 69! I was made up 
with these issues as not only was 65 and 66 a two part story and I got both parts in one go mm-hmm. always exciting when that happened uh, and quite an achievement was it back then yes okay. with spotty UK distribution but issue 79 was a single issue story I'm sure I said 69 before you did but I meant 79 so when you listen to this pretend that I said 79 before and I didn't make that 69 joke 65 and 66 were two really excellent issues of Spider-Man and Captain Britain teaming up against Arcade and 79 had Ron 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 Sonja who's Ron Sonja it's Red Sonja's brother Captain Ron Sonja with Kurt Russell in it okay I think that'd be quite cool. Uh, issue 79 actually had Red Sonia in it, not Ron Sonia, <laughs> uh, and she took over Murray Jane. Nice. In a car. Oh. No, she actually <laughs> took over her body and pretended to oh, be right. Red Sonia, and it was very good. All the issues were written by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. They didn't, John Byrne didn't write them though. Mm. He only drew them. Right. Really getting it well tonight, aren't we? You are. Um, and the Red Sonia issue had the added attraction of being inked by Terry Austin. Okay. It's a classic Marvel Team of 79. I almost picked that one. Not 69. Not 69, no. I have no idea what was in issue 69. Um, I recall managing to get 74, which meant absolutely nothing to me because the team up people were the cast of Saturday Night Live. Okay. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase and that lot. Oh, okay. Also, Chevy Chase is actually an actor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I had no idea what Saturday Night Live was when I was 10 so it made no difference to me I, I managed to get hold of issue 106 and annual number 2 my golden age though and my second favourite era for the book after the Clermont Burn stuff is James DeMathis or DeMatteis depending on how you pronounce it wrong, and especially the work he did with Kerry Gamble DeMatteis' stories were often quite deep dealing with themes such as ageing and dying issue 119 featuring Gargoyle and issue 120 with Dominic Fortune being prime examples of this but he often tinged them with humour Gamble is for my money simply one of the most underrated artists in comics which is why for today's first magnificent example of four colour goodness I have picked Marvel Team-Up issue 121, which I bought off the rack. I did. Bought this off the stands, brand new. You were holding in your hands a little comic that I purchased with my own 25 pennies when I was however the hell old I was. It came out on June 15th, 1982. It's September. Which is my 10th birthday. But I probably got this in September, yeah, because we had the three-month lag time due to them getting shipped over on boats and all that gubbins. Okay. Ten years old when I bought this. Uh, the cover is by Ed Hannigan and Al Milgram and features a super speedy bad guy named Speed Demon about to trounce Spider-Man in the same way he's already nailed the human torch. Hannigan was putting it in the back of the net at this time with a series of Spider-Man covers that are amongst the best in the character's history. If you want evidence, my lord, witnesses covers for Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man issues 64, 66, 67 and especially 72. Um, It's a good cover. I quite like it. It's marred only by the fact that my 10-year-old self has drawn on it. A tiny bit in the corner. tiny bit in the corner. But still, nevertheless... Well, My ten-year-old self has drawn does, on the cover of this the comic book. Does Demon also have the power of changing the colour of his costume? It's, it's just an artistic affectation. And where's he coming from? 
Round the corner. You see him coming in from that way, and the book is over there. He's come round the corner. So why can't that mystery hero stop him once he comes round? Well, just stick his leg out and trip him up. Instead of watching Spider-Man hug Johnny Storm. He's not hugging him. He's lifting him up or resting him, letting him down gently. He's hugging him. He's not hugging him. He's just being caught in the axe. John Constantine's watch around the corner and caught him in the axe. It does look like John Constantine's on the cover (laughs) with a crew cut. So maybe it's supposed to be Barry Allen, which would be it quite been. appropriate, given that it's the speed demon. Mm. Look Before You Leap, as I leaf through my lovely little comic book, was written by J.M. DeMatteis, with pencils by Kerry Gamble and inks by Mike Esposito. Letters were by Joe Rosen, colours by Bob Sharon, and edited by Tom DeFalco, whilst Jim Shooter was the big boss. The story goes thusly. The Human Torch flies away from the Baxter building with a huge grin on his face. He's a bit bored and just goofing off when he spies a robbery. He drops down to wrap up the would-be thieves, but Spider-Man beats him to it. The two heroes swap insults and the bad guys use this opportunity to beat feet. Spider-Man and the Torch take these C-listers down quite easily, but as they attempt to return the cash, it's ripped off again by the Speed Demon. Speed Demon seems a bit flash-like in his power set and the duo take off after him. Watching all this is Vincent Padilio, one-time supervillain The Leapfrog, who, after a few tussles with Daredevil, served his time and returned to his family. Making ends meet hasn't always been easy, especially after the death of his wife. Vincent's son, Eugene Petilio, leaves his dad to rest and removes one of his dad's old costumes from the closet. Meanwhile, the torch's overconfidence causes Speed Demon to gain the upper hand and he runs rings round them. Leapfrog tries to thwart a mugging and then gets embroiled in a misunderstanding with the police when the two stories collide. Speed Demon manages to corral both heroes just as Leapfrog shows up and distracts both Spider-Man and the torch. Coincidentally, Vinnie Petilio, searching for his son, follows the sounds of battle just as Leapfrog accidentally bounces around Speed Demon so fast he's bewildered and then he lands on him. After explanations, Eugene announces he's going to rename himself Frogman. The Spectacular Frog. The Spectacular Frogman. Would people not just keep looking at him and going, where's your scuba diving kit then? Flipper-dipper. <laughs> Flipper-dipper. <laughs> Um, that's the synopsis in a nutshell. Issue, issue one. <clears throat> page one. Look. Look at page one. Yeah. Look carefully, Mr. Grim and Gritty, new 52 guy. Yeah. The Human Torch is smiling. Oh, right. Smiling. Yeah. A smiling superhero. I thought you were about the back building in the background. Call Dandy Dio. Tell him heroes can smile. They can? Yes, okay. apparently. Why are you concerned about the Baxter building in the background? It's different. Why? It keeps changing. No, it's not. That's the that, it building. looks boring, though. It's not got a big four on the top engraved. That was Four Freedoms Plaza. So, the Baxter Building would get destroyed, right? And they rebuild it as Four Freedoms Plaza, right? And then I think they may just rename it as the Baxter Building. I don't remember. Right. Okay. At some point in the near future. Fair enough. Then. I said near it? future. Uh, Reed Richards owns it, as not far as I recall. He bought out Mr. Collins. Not Mr. Baxter. No. Right. Not Mr. Baxter. Why is it called the Baxter? From Grange Hill. Because <laughs> it was once owned by somebody called Baxter who built the building. Alright. If memory serves. What a Baxter. Oh, uh, dear God. Page two. As we continue on from that lovely attempt at humour. <laughs> um, <laughs> attempt at humour, yes. Page two. I love the shots of the torch flying. The top three panels of this are just the torch flying around and having fun. I love it when artists draw flying characters. Any flying characters just enjoying what they do just think how awesome it would be to be able to fly hmm? wouldn't it be really cool it would I think so I also like how the torch is but loved by the fly? public 
What do you mean? What's what's enabling you to fly? What's propelling you? Well, the Human Torch's pseudo-comic book scientific explanation is that fire is lighter than air, therefore he is lighter than air so when he's, he's on fire. Then. Therefore he can fly. I don't know what propels him forward. There you go, then. Is it your hair? Do you feet? What, like you make little swimming motions with your feet? <laughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> like you're swimming through the air. Do your feet move you and your hands stabilise you? Don't know. Okay. Do you have an arrow in your head? Superman kind of flies himself telekinetically, doesn't he? Does it? Yeah, he kind of wills it to happen. And he, yeah. he does actually bank and swoop and move and dive, doesn't like he? Like a plane. Yeah. I'm like a bird. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like that all the public just like him. And yeah. just wave at him as he flies by. It's a lovely little touch that he waves back. Oh, do we still have to pretend he's got a secret identity? Since gone. Do it, do, is it? Yes. Right. Long since disappeared. Um, page three, uh, panels three and four. I love that Johnny's just about to say something and he's interrupted by Spider Man. Comedy gold! Right out of his mouth. You took the words right out of my mouth. If I could, I would. You just did? To stop you from singing. Oh, I like my singing. It makes me happy. Yes. Well, the crooks seem to be shocked that they've been stopped by two heroes. It's Marvel New York. It's a miracle when you only get three. It does seem to me <clears throat> to be quite a stupid place to try and pull off crimes. Yeah. Because it's not like... You rob a bank in Manhattan, you got the Avengers on you, the Defenders yeah. on you, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four. Pretty much every hero in the Marvel Universe lives in New York, don't yeah. they? It's like, wouldn't you just move to somewhere where there, San Francisco where there are no superheroes? Because, yeah. like, Metropolis has got Superman, but he's only one guy. So there's a possibility, no matter how remote, that you could get away with a crime if he's busy fighting off with the Justice League or something. Yeah. Gotham City's got Batman. And occasionally Nightwing and, and Nightwing and various and occasional others. But on the whole, again, a very big city patrolled by normal people. Yep. New York's full of them. Yep. You think you'd say, you know that bank you want to rob in Midtown Manhattan? Yeah. Just, just down the road from where Doctor Strange lives and up the road from the Avengers Mansion. And there's the Baxter building, you can see it. And look, Spider-Man's just swinging by. And oh look, did Daredevil just go past? New York's the, the mecca of superheroes. Yeah. Why don't we just go and rob the same bank in San Francisco? Let's go to Spain. No Let's rob a bank in yeah, Spain. Let's rob a bank in Spain. <laughs> there are no Spanish superheroes. Let's go to Spain. El Español. I quite like that. Ah, Zorro. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Zorro. Is a Yeah, but he's 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 not contemporary, is he? Oh, no. He's He's in the past. You know what? I, I will stop. Zorro <laughs> with his Zimmer frame. Of Zorro. <laughs> he paints the sign of the Z for Zimmer. <laughs> oh, dear God. Uh, page four. I learned something from this comic book as a lowly ten-year-old. I learned the word badinage. I've also drawn on this page. Have you? Yes. What? The... Johnny Storm's her. Oh, I've noticed it later on as well. I have coloured Johnny Storm's her. You've, you've drawn someone else's her? Ah, uh, yes. Well, it flows one yes. way, but you give them a curl yes. in the other direction. Yes. I want to go back in time and slap my <laughs> ten-year-old self. Um, it's a nice touch that Johnny uses a web flame to roust the bad guys. 
Because he's working with Spider-Man, see? Okay. I quite like that. How do you make the shapes out of fire like that? Because he can. <laughs> Pseudo-scientific <laughs> ability to be able to do that. Panel 6 of this page does beg a question of how strong the torch is. As far as I recall, Johnny has no super strength, does he? No. Yet here he's carrying two bad guys, one in each arm, with no visible strain. And he's it's, not falling down. And it's not falling down, it's not causing him to lose any altitude or anything like that. It's possible the same thing that causes Johnny to be lighter than her when he flies helps him to lift things like but this when he flies as well. I know, but the rest of him is, so that would counterbalance it, wouldn't it? Oh, would it? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a no prize. <laughs> I'm, I, I live in this this deluded mindset that Stan Lee listens to that. Yeah. And at some point, we're just going to get a no prize through the post because Stan said, I was listening, true believer, to your podcast. Excelsior. And that no prize you came up, that was damn good. Damn good. I'm going to send you a no prize. Why does Stan Lee talk like a Texan? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Price of gas in oil and near the Middle East causing gas guzzlers. I don't know what happened to Stanley. I'm Stanley or Morgan and Morgan. I don't, I don't know what happened to Stanley. Very strange. Oh, dear me. Do they still do no prizes? I, I don't. Probably not. Probably cost yeah, too much money. You're drawing his hair again. Yeah, so on the next page, I'm drawing his hair Page again. six. That cup's surely given up. Let's face it, holding on to that character must be mighty hard. There's just no point there is no... There's, as a matter of fact, there's no point in keeping Venom or Electro contained, is there? It's too hard. Why um, not just let him go? Why is he Irish? Because <laughs> of Deputy O'Hara. Chief O'Hara yeah. has moved to New York. Yeah. He's had enough of Gotham. Yeah. He thought, I'll go to New York with her in your costume <laughs> superheroes. Don't! Well, it makes his job easier. Oh, Actually, God, he didn't do much of a work in Gotham, did he? Yeah. Oh, there's a bank robber. Let's call Batman. Um, the next page, Spider-Man apprehending the bad guys, which he does without lifting a finger, thanks to some web nets that he prepared earlier. It is really quite funny. He's herding them in the direction. I made earlier. Yeah, he's herding them in the direction he wants them to go. It's brilliant. And on page eight, Johnny's hubris. It's counterpointed by Spider-Man's pragmatism. This is something that's been really lacking from recent Torch Spider-Man meetings. The two are friends and happily rip the piss out of each other. Because, you know, that's what friends do. However, there was always an element of Peter being more mature than Johnny, despite the similarity in ages. In recent years, they've written Johnny and Peter as frat boy goofballs, more akin to Jonah Hill and Seth Rogen than the characters as they're portrayed here. It's fitting, I suppose, given that Marvel now seems to have taken the approach that Peter Parker is little more than a mouthy teenager in recent years. But I don't really like it very much. Um, I've also given Johnny Storm breasts <laughs> on that page, yes. Yes, I, I don't know. I don't know what my ten-year-old self was thinking. <laughs> yes, it's, it's very, very stupid, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, page eight. Yes. But Vincent Petilio isn't listening to his son. His voice annoys him and he just talks on and on about nothing. <laughs> That's not... He thinks that if he hears anything about a little big planet again, he's just going to slap his child in the face. That's not... Which he does. What it says. Slap his child in the face. <laughs> his little fat ginger child. Are you persecuting the ginger people again? You did it last no, week. No, no. He is a little fat ginger child. He's, Who has he's, the face of a 50-year-old woman. He's slightly porky. It has to be said. And yes, he, he is auburn in her colour. And auburn in the face because he got slapped by his dad. And we don't approve of, of child beating, do we? <laughs> but you never mention it and the kid's happy with it like... He's just... not! 
not happy with it. They do. They follow through. Vincent's like instantly shocked and upset by what he's done. It's not like he's he's got the memories of wearing that frog costume. (laughs) It's not like he just slaps his son around on a regular basis. You would not call this man a child beater. He looks like a green melted Suntaran in that thing. (laughs) With kangaroo boots. See, I think this is why Dematheus is a good writer, or Dematheus. He really gets under the leapfrog skin here, making you feel genuine sympathy for this B-list villain. It's a remarkable feat, given that he does, as Michael points out, he does backhand Vincent on the top of page 11. What redeems him, I think, is his almost palpable regret in the following panel. It, it is quite obvious, though, that he's, he's done something, he's lashed out in anger or frustration or whatever, and he instantly regrets it. Um... And it, it, it's, as, as we say, it's ably portrayed by Kerry Gamble. But then he switches the story to farce in the space of a page, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. As Eugene, Eugene tries on his leapfrog costume. And it suddenly it fits him perfectly. And it fits him perfectly, despite the fact that Eugene's a, a good couple of pounds heavier than his dad. He does have a bit of a gut, mm. it has to be said, around the middle, so the costume doesn't fit wonderfully. And um, Matthias would do that a lot. He, he transitions between comedy and drama. In, uh, in these team-up issues quite a bit. It's a testament to his skill, really. It didn't felt very jarring. Or I didn't think it did. In his latest Spectacular Spider-Man-ish run, he would do comedy issues and then dramatic issues, but he wouldn't marry the two together as much as he does here. Okay. For those that are interested, the Leapfrog first appeared in Daredevil 25 and 26. And as you may have surmised, he's not a villain generally taken too seriously. Oh, Is yeah. he? No. The Kermit right. gag on page 12 is funny. It has to be said. Did you see that? Where Leapfrog's bouncing down the street and uh, two drunkards are sat there going, Hey, Wally, that Kermit guy from the TV. You were nipping the sauce again, Ricky. Okay. It made me laugh. Okay. Can you do the the Kermit laugh where where he keeps, gets his mouth like open so that it's flat? (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know that Leapfrog can do that. To be honest with you. Um, page 13, watching the torch get his confidence skewered is highly amusing. And page 14 has a great scene where Spidey fires a web at Speed Demon who avoids it and smacks a passerby in the mouth. <laughs> Did you know that that was funny? That was hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> Poor passerby, minding his own business, barking down the street. God full of webbing. <laughs> and he's got to wait there for an hour till it dissolves. I hope he's not got a cold. Imagine if he couldn't breathe through his nose. <laughs> Spider-Man's just killed yet. <laughs> That'd be funny. Well, yeah. Until he then dies. Until he, <laughs> until he passes out. Yeah. Maybe somebody just stuck a straw through it. <laughs> so he could breathe until well, it dissolved. Put a straw in it, you could rip it off. I don't know, because would it not take some of his skin off with it? Well, yeah. Possibly. Page 15. It's a bit coincidental that in all of New York City, the leapfrog would encounter a police car with his friend's old cellmate. But that kind of thing happens all the time in comics, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Eugene's complete inability to use his dad's equipment, including the leaping springs, is hysterical. Uh, There's a subtle reference to Hill Street Blues. The cops are called Francis and Belka. Francis Farillo and Mick Belka were characters played by Daniel Trevanti and Bruce Veitz. Okay. Didn't know that, did you? Nope. And Car 54, Where Are You? Which was an early 60s sitcom. Okay. Which I've never seen. But the cops are driving Car 54. That's the call sign. I would have made it Zebra 3. Okay. 
if it was me. All units, green Chevrolet with Ohio license, reported music pavilion underground parking area. Zebra 3, see attendant Market Street entrance. Got it. Well, that's just me. Pages 16 through 19. Lots of lovely little touches in Gamel's art. A speed demon uses his speed to trounce the torch, and to a lesser extent, Spider-Man. I particularly love the sequence where Speed Demon causes an enraged torch to fly through a Michelini tyres van. Probably a nod to David Michelini. Okay. I would have thought. And speed through Spider-Man's web. And there's a palpable feeling here that Spider-Man could have taken Speed Demon a whole lot quicker on his own. And spends an inordinate amount of time saving the torch's ass. His anger, though when Speed Demon almost kills Johnny is very effective. When Spider-Man stops kidding around, that's when there's normally trouble. I've also drawn on this page. <laughs> I've given Vincent Petillo a kiss curl. Oh, God damn it. <sighs> of course, neither Spider nor the Torch anticipate the appearance of Leapfrog. And this... This is how a good writer treats a B-list bad guy. Did Mateus treat Speed Demon as a credible threat? and makes it believable when he almost takes Spider-Man and the torch down. It's hard to imagine any of today's comics writers being able to treat Speed Demon with a straight face and they just mock him instead of handling him this well. Instead, a decent writer and artist team create a fun issue that tells its tale in one issue. There are no real repercussions for either Spider-Man or the torch here. It was just a fun little adventure. <sighs> I presume you didn't like it. It was supposed to be a bit silly. Or was it? Yes. Because it excelled in that department. <laughs> not for you, then. What, not Mr. Really? Grim and Gritty. No. No, okay. Eugene Petilio as the Frogman would show up in another team of issue by DeMatteis and Gamel. Issue 131 is the best things in life for free. But everything else guy? costs money. Nope. Good no. guy at that point. Versus the White Rabbit. Take note, Batman reader. Isn't she in DC now? She is. Uh, Peter David would then write a few stories with him, which were just as silly as the Di Matteis ones. He recently cropped up in Spider Island. Did I? Yeah. Right. He was in Spider Island. I uh, know that. There's not really any good ads in this issue, is there? To be it, honest with you. There's no sea monkeys. No, there's, it's mostly the dawn of the video game age, isn't it, really? As we get into this part. Uh, the Bullpen Bulletin's page plugs a new Wolverine 4 issue miniseries by Claremont and Frank Miller. And the comic book adaptation of Blade Runner by Archie Goodwin and Al Williams, which was really good. I enjoyed that. Uh, the letters page features a letter from Greg Cox. You recognise that name? I do not. Greg Cox, I'm assuming, is the guy who would go on to write the novelisation for Final Crisis. Right. And various other books. A uh, quick break to plug somebody's show, and we'll be right back. The internet is really, really great. For Guy Gardner Podcast. i got a fast connection, so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. 
Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneoftheguys.libson.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Just One of the Guys does not officially certify that this podcast is more enjoyable than pornography. And we're back. Our next issue, from the other major spin-off title of the day, the rather long-winded Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man. Launching in September of 1976, Peter Parker, for the most part, told its own stories for the first hundred or so issues of its 263-issue run, with occasional nods to what was happening in Amazing. Roger Stern helped writer Bill Mantle plot a hobgoblin story that appeared in issue 85. Stern had Spider-Man visit the Black Cat in hospital in Amazing following the events of Peter Parker 75, that kind of thing. This changed with issue 131, with the fearful symmetry Craven's Last Hunt story arc, and the books operated on a much tighter continuity going forward, but still retained their own identity. The title dropped Peter Parker, becoming simply Spectacular Spider-Man with issue 134, and with issue 217, all of the Spider-Man books essentially became one extended narrative, and any pretense that you could read only one of the books was abandoned, as we journeyed happily into the Clone Saga. And we left, rather, unhappily. My pick from Spectacular, however, comes from Simple. I'm a bit simple by and large. Well, mostly large. (laughs) Mostly large. Uh, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 58, came out on June 16th, 1981. It really is coincidental that this is is almost another birthday issue. Is it coincidental? It really is, yes, and last month, last week as well. Because I'm not believing you. I think you've not done it purposefully at all. Okay. It really is coincidental. Is this not you just remind beating into me when your birthday is? It wouldn't help, would it? Not really. You wouldn't remember, would you? No. no. I'm your child, I can't remember much. That's a good point. Uh, I picked this up, along with Peter Parker issue 41, oddly enough, on holiday with the family in Spain. True story. In fact, my copy of issue 41, not this one, still has the Spanish price sticker on it. Does it? Yeah. Is it I stuck Spanish? It in the, no, it's, it's an American comic book. Spider-Man. El Spider-Man. El Hombre Arana. No, 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 Spider-Man. No, 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 Spider-Man. No, 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 Spider-Man. Can do whatever a Spider-Man. Oh, andere, andere, anybody, but... Um, I vividly remember picking this up, actually. Uh, I saw these two on a Spanish newsstand whilst my mum was in the next door bakery buying bread. When she came out... It's a great memory. Yeah, it's a brilliant memory. I brandished these two issues before her. Yeah. And probably pleaded a bit. I'm not proud. Yeah. Uh, and she bought them for me. And I distinctly remember reading them by the pool in the villa. Okay. Ah... Uh, Fond, fond memories. This issue has an excellent cover by John Byrne and Joe Rubenstein of Spider-Man in the middle of some during do, whilst an unusual looking man fires rings at him. Rings. Yes. Commitment, commitment. <laughs> Spider-Man's not for commitment. Uh, Spider-Man's costumes are slightly darker blue than usual, similar to the costume in the Sam Raimi movies, and the cover copy practically screams Stan Lee. Here's the web slinger you demanded. Fighting, joking, defying death in a savage rooftop battle. Ravaged by the ringer. 
Did he get his Ringo out of Is that what happens in prison? That's, that's, yeah. yeah. The only thing wrong with the cover is the sky is yellow. It'd have been better in light blue, wouldn't it? Yeah. What do you think of Ravaged by the Ringo as a cover, Michael? You're just imagining his ring being ravaged, are you? <laughs> ravage me! Ravage me! Do you like the cover? Uh, Do you like the it, art? It's, it's a decent cover, yeah. Do you like anything particularly? Do you like the Spider-Man-esque pose? The fact that our wall-crawling hero is upside down? The, <laughs> the, the, I, the, I, I like... You just like... I like I like the corner box. I like the upside down. I like that the corner box has Pete Spider-Man just pulling on his mask. That reveals his secret identity. It does, but it's only to us, actually, the reader. Actually, r- running around calling himself Pete Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man probably that, gave away that his identity. probably gives away his, his uh, secret identity. Uh, ring Out the Old Ring in the New was written by Roger Stern. Hoorah! With pencils by Jolly John Byrne and inks by Vince Coletta. Gene Simic lettered, Ben Sean coloured, and Tom DeFalco was the editor. With Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief. The story goes thusly. Anthony Davis, a.k.a. second-rate bad guy, The Ringer, watches from afar as the only two cops in New York guard the HQ of the terrible Tinkerer, taken down by Spider-Man four issues prior. Taking the long way round, The Ringer breaks into the Tinkerer's lab to retrieve his new costume, which can use particle condensers to turn the soot and smog in the air and create rings harder than steel. Makes sense. I never said comic book science had to make sense. <laughs> He's interrupted by a shadowy figure, TM, who beats him quite easily and after monologuing about his own greatness, picks the ringer up and a package from the Tinkerer's lab and leaves. Peter Parker, meantime, in his role as grad student and teaching assistant, has just took a class and new student, Greg Salinger, was mightily impressed. Peter thanks him and leaves, meeting up with his TA colleagues and asking Deborah Whitman, the head of section secretary, out on a date. Later, Peter folds up his date clothes into a web pack and dons his spider duds. On his way across town, he's attacked by the Ringer, who now has an explosive ring around his waist courtesy of the shadowy figure, TM. One of the funniest fight scenes ever to appear in a Spider-Man comic follows, so Spider-Man laughs in the Ringer's face and then leaves because he's going to be late for his date if he doesn't. After the date, Peter arranges to meet back up with Deb after he's run an errand. His errand, of course, is to roust the Ringer, which he does, and after pointing out that the Ringer has been hard and he's not going to blow up real good, he deposits him at the nearest precinct. He heads home to meet Deb for a pleasant evening alone. Meanwhile, the shadowy figure is revealed as the Beetle, and the Ringer beamed him lots of data about Spider-Man's fighting techniques, data that will soon prove useful in defeating Spider-Man once and for all. The Beetle. The Beetle. The Beatle is all great, all powerful, all knowing. See, you're, you're saying this, but once again, B-list bad guy, handled well by a writer, instead of just made into a joke like Mark Miller would do, <laughs> or Bendis would do. I, I've, be- I've beaten up the Beatle. I have. In what way? Ultimate Spider-Man. The game mm. on the PlayStation. Is the Beatle in there? Yeah. Do you know I don't remember? He, he, he that. Is that the PlayStation Two one? Yeah. Right. I really like it. All of the Spider-Man games have been, to lesser and varying degrees, not bad. Yeah. Although we still haven't played that one we borrowed off our mate, Scott. Shat Dim. Shat, shat Dim. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've played some of it. Is it good? You'll get bored of it easily. Will I? Yeah. No Arkham Asylum, is it that? No. Okay, fair enough. It's 
levels and it's very linear in the sense of go this way, beat up anything that gets in your way. Right. I'm prepared to give it a go because it's got Spider-Man 2099 in it. I still want to play uh, Web of Shadows. Yeah, we'll get that one then. The symbiote one. Yeah. Anyway, back to this comic. Page one. Vince Coletta is a very controversial figure in the comics industry, primarily for his handling of Jack Kirby's pencils on the Mighty Thor. Work comparison to the original art revealed that Coletta erased portions of Kirby's detailed art and actively changed others. Kirby eventually fired Coletta from inking his work, and it's true that Kirby's work looks a lot better under Joe Sinnott and Mike Royer. It's also true that Kirby's pencils do have more raw power on display than the finished work. Here, however, I think Coletta does a workmanlike job. He doesn't bury Burns' pencils with his soft lines, it's still recognisably burn, but a much softer burn than we're used to. I would have loved to have seen the original pencils for this, but they're not on Burns' website. But I think the splash page is lovely. The backgrounds are all present and correct, the people look distinct and have unique faces, the shadows are rendered wonderfully, and Byrne pulls the old Ditko standby of having Peter be half Spider-Man. Peter makes reference to this time of his life, a time when he was a graduate student and a teaching assistant, which is a good way of keeping Peter in school while still having him be Spider-Man. A graduate student can be any age, really, but presumably Peter's in his early 20s in this story. Oh, that's my estimate, anyway. Okay. So he's always been a teaching assistant? No, he became a teaching assistant, uh, I want to say, the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. He started being a teaching when assistant. When did he stop? Because um, he then starts being a teacher again in the Straczynski room. He stopped being a teaching assistant, I think with Roger Stern's last issue on Spectacular Spider-Man, which would be issue 60, wouldn't it? If this is 58, yeah. I think he stopped being a teaching assistant then, huh. and then he would pack school in completely in one of Stern's Amazing Spider-Man issues, which would ultimately lead to Aunt May not talking to him for a while. Why? Because he's dropped out of school. Oh, OK. And she's not best pleased. Fair enough. So... But yeah, he does go back to teaching in Straczynski's run, doesn't he? Yeah. But I don't know that he ever qualified as a teacher. See, that was always something in Straczynski's run that made me go, hmm, I don't remember him qualifying as a teacher. Okay. I think he packed it all in, right. rather than get his degree or it, whatever. It doesn't matter now, anyway. <clears throat> it doesn't matter anymore, no. Page two. Stern very subtly sets up a storyline here that he'll take across titles when he graduates to Amazing in two issues' time. Greg Salinger, who Peter literally bumps into on page two, refers to the fools in administration on panel four, relating to the university administration. Salinger would bubble along in the background as a subplot until he would be revealed to be the fool killer in Amazing Spider-Man 225. Okay. I love all these little continuity the touches. Killer. The fool killer. Yes, he, he pretty much does what he says he'll do. He kills fools. Unfortunately, what? he takes it ever so slightly far. Do you, like, stump your toe? Yes. You fool! <laughs> and shoot you. Yes, he, he's, he's, he's insane. <laughs> it's probably the best way to put it. Uh, page three. Stern makes a really big deal out of the ringer sneaking around the cops and making his way slowly and quietly into the tinkerer's lap. You wouldn't want a big deal in your ringer. Oh, God. Yeah. Ah, the cops still hear the chink, chink, chink of his rings as he drops in, but they dismiss it as bells. Okay. How stupid are the these two policemen? I, I don't know. However, on page five, it has to be pointed out that the shadowy finger smashes the wall in, screams at the top of his voice, engages in a full-on brawl with the ringer, and monologues to himself out loud. <laughs> he doesn't just think it. And yet the cops don't hear. Yeah. Maybe they nipped off for donuts. Yeah. Possibly. Well, 
the ring has got a band of name as it is, but his power's the ability to perform magic tricks. <laughs> his power! Ah, I have two rings, now try to pull them apart. You can't do it, can you, Spider-Man? <laughs> That's magic! Who's the lovely Debbie McGee? Um, oh, dear me. Kick my ringers, uh, rings, things, now the Beatles smashed him up a bit. Uh, really, really, really. Really. Uh, page nine. Moving swiftly on from Michael's book gags. In contrast to the Ringo's pseudoscience, Roger Bacon, Henry Cavendish, and Joseph Priestley were all real scientists. Bacon was from Somerset in England and was the first European to detail how to make gunpowder. Cavendish was born in France but British by descent and discovered hydrogen. And Priestley he discovered born in hydrogen. Yes, he, he discovered hydrogen because it always existed. It's like gravity. You, didn't, yeah. you don't invent gravity, you discover it. Yeah. It's always been there. Um, Priestley, born in Yorkshire, England, discovered oxygen. Same again. He didn't invent it. It was already there. I only mention the nationality of these fine examples of scientific research to emphasise that we've gone from these esteemed thinkers to the only way is Essex. Why? What's that? That awful show, the reality thing about Essex. There's a reality show about Essex. <coughs> yeah, it's the thing that Russell Howard. It's the thing that Russell Howard takes the mic oh, out. Oh, um, that with shut, shut up. up. Yeah, oh. yeah, that, that's the one. You do just want to smack them all in the Fair face. Mm. Well, the best chemistry lessons I had were the ones where we got to blow stuff up and set things on fire. I do, I do like <laughs> chemistry, but sometimes I'd rather blow stuff up than learn about covalent and ionic bonding. Yeah, blowing stuff up is cool. It is. <laughs> green fire. Uh, there's nothing cooler than green fire. Mm. Page nine. Marcy Kane, Professor Sloan, Deborah Whitman, Steve Hopkins and Phil Chang, along with Roger Hotchberg, who isn't present here, were the spider writers of this era's attempt to create a supporting cast that would rival the old gang of the Lee Ditko Ramita era. None of them really caught on. Marcy Kane would run off with the Jack of Hearts and Deb Whitman would leave in issue 74, only returning to Civil War after Peter reveals his ID to the world. Does she return with a tell-all book? Does she? Yeah, in one of Peter David's friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. F and Spider-Man. They're really good. F and Spider-Man. That's, what, that's the name of the book. F and Spider-Man. Oh, OK. <laughs> Think about it. Page 12. Am I the only one that thinks there's something inherently funny about Spider-Man brushing his teeth? Someone's attacking me with munchkin-sized hula hoops. It can only be one of two people. Polo Man or my arch nemesis, my old PE teacher. Uh, the art's good. <laughs> On that panel. I quite like that. Page 13 through 17, the fight scene here is hysterical. Burns art's awesome. It really is. Is Spider-Man skinnier than Ramita's and a bit more wiry than Ditko's? But the top panel on page 14, which was the one you were just talking about, is awesome. With him dodging the ringers' rings above New York City. Burns shoots the scene from above, so we see New York, the New York landscape below. It's a really effective angle. I really like that. I always love that he swings upside down as well. Yeah. I really like that. And then there's the characterization. Spider-Man just mocks the ringer mercilessly. I was glad he did that. Actively taking the piss out of his prowess, and all the time ringers bothered Spider-Man's going to damage his dental work. <laughs> to add insult to injury, Spider-Man ditches the fight because he's late for a date. Mm-hmm. Why were you Why were you happy that he did that? Well, I, I was glad that he took the mick out of him. Because he's a lame bad guy. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Would you have just took the mick out of the ringer mercilessly? Probably. Um... Page 20, the ring is terrified of the shadowy figure, which even though he is a bit of a B-lister, does give some 
some weight to the storyline. He spends the entire evening looking for Spider-Man, who just comes back just to clean his clock. What follows is the second funniest Spider-Man fight scene in a comic. I've read this issue countless times. I still laughed out loud when Spider-Man kicks Ringer in the gut and then says he only did that so as not to mess up his teeth. <laughs> I'm doing it for you, dude. I just kick the crap out of your stomach so I don't damage your teeth. It's all for you. <laughs> oh, so funny. Yeah, he's still gives some sympathy to him at the end of it. And I love that he called him Ringo, yeah. which was really funny. He recognises that it seems to be under duress, shows some genuine concern when he thinks the ring is around his middle is about to explode. I liked it. I thought it was really good. I loved page 21. I adored the precinct panel with the protestations of the scantily clad woman that she was just standing there and the officer's statement that, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before. And for once, Stern avoids all the standard Spider-Man cliches. Peter makes it to his date on time. His clothes don't get shredded and the evening ends well. For now. And he hangs his tie on the door. Yes. I do like the Beatles. I liked the bit. The next two issues are really good. That's that's his ultimate get-up. Is it? Only he's silver and red. Right, instead of purple and green. Mm. Which makes him look like the Hulk. In the sense that he's purple and green. He doesn't actually look like the Hulk. I thought this was a great issue. I really did think it was funny. Stern layers his story with lots of portents. The On the Trail of Spider-Man show that we see on page 8 plays into the next issue, whilst the full extent of the Beatles' plan will also unfold. Name of... The um, story for the Daily Eagle that Jonah pays Jessica... On the trail of Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Little nod. (laughs) Uh, The art's exceptional. Whilst I tend to think Coletta's inks are often too thin and soft, and there are very definite Coletta faces on pages 2, 11 and 18, he never completely obliterates Burn's art, and some of the Spider-Man poses Burn whips out are some of the best. I don't think it looks like Burn. Do you not? Why not? It doesn't look like Burn. Just doesn't. It's very early burn. Yeah, right. Where he's not quite developed into what you will. Like Ramita Jr. Yeah. Very, very early stuff. Uh, Burn never really had a decent run on Spider-Man until the late 1980s, and the problems that I had with Spider-Man Chapter 1 was nothing to do with the art. It's just everything else. What was wrong with it? Everything. Okay. Everything was wrong with it. One, Spider-Man's beginnings didn't need retelling. Okay. Two, the whole point of it was let's fix Spider-Man because it came at the time that they rebooted the books. Right. But again, it wasn't his beginnings that needed fixing. It yeah. was everything else. But they didn't do anything with everything else. They okay. retold his beginnings, which didn't need fixing. Then to make it even worse, Byrne had this god-awful storytelling technique because what he would do yeah. is he would tell a Lee Ditko story, yeah. but he'd cut it in half. Okay. And he'd tell half of it in one issue and make a cliffhanger ending out of the middle of the story yeah. and then tell the next half in the next, the first half of the next issue and then do the same again. Okay. Which kind of defeats the point because one, Lee and Ditko did all this in one issue right. and he's creating fabricated cliffhangers. And secondly, he didn't bring anything new to chapter one but he took away from the old stuff. There's always a light-heartedness to Spider-Man that Ditko and Lee captured perfectly even when it was tragic and he just made it all tragic there was okay. very little humour and it's no, no, chapter one's cack the art's nice though another break another ad be right back in June of 1962 a superhero unlike any other made his first appearance in the pages of Amazing Fantasy number 15 
the final issue of that series. Six months later, this character would receive his own title, and from there he would grow in popularity and be adapted into several animated series, a handful of live-action series, both in the U.S. and abroad, have countless action figures made in his likeness, dominate the cinema screen, and much, much more. It is fair to say that the amazing Spider-Man is a pop culture icon and a fictional character that people all over the world identify with and love. This year, Spider-Man is turning 50, and Views from the Long Box, an internet radio series hosted by me, Michael Bailey, is going to celebrate the wall crawler in a series of episodes focusing on various aspects of the character's existence. Together with such podcasting luminaries as Brad Douglas, Andrew Leyland, John Wilson, and Scott Gardner, I'm going to give Spidey the biggest birthday card a comic fan could. He may not be my favorite character, but I like him a great deal, and he deserves the spotlight in this, his 50th year. Views from the Long Box can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. New episodes hit every Friday. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Baileytooth production in association with the DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. And we're back. The final book in our trifecta of ancillary titles comes from the adjective-less Spider-Man. Spider-Man number one debuted on June 19th, 1990, coincidence, Um, around my birthday again, pure luck, uh, and was Todd McFarlane's ego project. That's fair to say, isn't it? His ego project. His ego project. (laughs) It sold bucket loads, but it wasn't very good. And when he left, we were still left with a Spider-Man title that now served no purpose and even less demand, but still managed to run for 98 issues. The issue I've picked is a hugely controversial and very important story in the life of Peter Parker and also Ben Riley. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Who's Ben Riley, Dad? Well, we've already covered a Byron Riley story in this before. Have we? Yeah. When did we do a Ben Riley story? The first Ben Riley one. Oh, yeah, we did Sensational Spider-Man Zero, didn't we? Yeah. Do you know, I've forgotten that we'd done that. Uh, anyway. This issue of Spider-Man, the only one called Peter Parker Spider-Man, which is important. Very important. Mm. Um, was number 75. And dropped on October 16th, 1996. I'll ask no one near my <laughs> uh, it's a double-sized issue featuring an awesome wraparound cover by John Romita Jr. Which we can have of as a Spider-Man it's left the in rest his of the issue. traditional costume, holding Ben Riley in his tattered and torn new Spider-Man costume, dodging pumpkin bombs from what looks like the original Green Goblin. As Michael points out, my copy of this has separated from the staples, but I don't care because while I was in America, I got a mint copy of this in the dollar bin. Okay. So I bought another one. So I'm using the old one for this. But yeah, it is tempting to take that out and use it as a poster. Can I have the cover for a poster? You can have the whole magazine for a poster. Alright If you want to. Because it's effing brilliant. Nah, I'll cut out all the dialogue so I don't effing shout at it every time I see it. Oh, is it going to be one of those, is it? Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. Revelations Part 4, Night of the Goblin, is written by Howard Mackey. With art by John Romita Jr. and Scott Hanna. Comic Craft did the letters, Kevin Tinsley did the colours, Mark Bernardo was the consulting editor, Ralph Macchio edited, and Bob Harris was the editor-in-chief. The issue is dedicated to Mark Gruenwald. 
Is that Glenn Fabric? Which is quite sad. Uh, it, I don't know. Michael's asking, is the Super Nintendo ad on the first page Glenn Fabric? I don't think it is. Because the Hulk's hands look very Fabric. They do. By which you mean they look old and wrinkly. Yeah. And look at his toes. That's <laughs> 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 just frankly ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, the story for this one. Murray Jane has gone into labour and Peter Parker skitters across New York sans Spider-Man duds for he is no longer Spider-Man. Revealed to be a clone, Peter has hung up the webs as the one true Spider-Man, now under the name Ben Riley, has taken over the mantle. Peter reaches the hospital but is drugged by Dr. Folsom. Peter wakes up in his Spider-Man costume, drugged and incapacitated by a pumpkin man by Norman Osborn. He assures Peter he's not a clone, not a mechanical construct, nor a doppelganger. He's the real deal. As if to prove the veracity of his claim, he rips open his shirt to reveal the scar where his goblin glider impaled him. He tells Peter that the serum that gave him his strength accelerated his healing, and after waking up in the morgue, he left New York to pursue interests abroad. At the Daily Bugle, an invitation has been received by a select few August individuals to attend a meeting, except all the invitations were signed by different people, and the invitees try to figure out what's going on. Ready or not? No. Norman continues to goad Peter as he dons his goblin costume. He pulls out the battered and bloody body of Ben Riley. Do you like all that alliteration? I was proud of that. And says that he's the clone, Peter. Always was. He explains that he was manipulating events from afar to bring Peter down, but at every turn he turned a negative into a positive, refused to give in, and even thrived. This irked Osborn, but a victory over Ben Riley means not. It's Peter Parker who needs to suffer. He lures Spider-Man outside where he learns they are directly across from the Daily Bugle. Everyone who has been unfortunate enough to have touched your life, screams the goblin, dies tonight! Spider-Man is about to follow Osborn when Ben Riley, still conscious, tells Peter that the Goblin has rigged the bugle to explode. Peter tells Ben to evacuate the bugle, but the Goblin is his. The Green Goblin crashes the party at the bugle, telling everyone that they have earned his contempt. Spider-Man arrives in time to save Jonah, and a huge fighty McFightenstein follows. The Goblin, more insane now than ever, pounds on Spider-Man, no quarter given. In true Spider-Man fashion, he refuses to give up, still standing when every bone in his body cries out for relief. He's not giving up, not until he knows where Mary Jane and the baby are. Meanwhile, Ben is evacuating the Daily Bugle. He gathers up the Goblin's pumpkin bombs, but one goes off near Flash Thompson. He pushes Thompson aside just in time, but takes a fatal blow to the stomach. Webbing himself up so his guts don't fall out all over the carpet, he takes the bombs to Osborne's building to destroy that, and then he vows to return to help Peter. Spider-Man, meanwhile, has rallied his strength. He stands before the Goblin, who screams, Why won't you die? Peter replies, I do it to spite you. I do it in spite of you. And he rips off his mask and the Goblin, saying, No more masks. This has never been about Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. It's always been about Peter Parker and Norman Osborn. And tonight they settle this face-to-face as men. A quick right hook and the Goblin goes down. Like a ladybug. <laughs> ben arrives and congratulates his cousin on a job well done and says that the bombs need taking to the Osborne building before they explode. The Goblin, however, fires his Goblin glider at Spider-Man but Ben jumps in between as he impaled on the glider and then falls hundreds of stories to land on the roof of a parked car. 
The goblin leaps forward, gloating, but Spider-Man hurls the pumpkin bomb at him and they explode. As he is engulfed in flame, Osborn says, I've already won. Take your pirate victory. You have no idea what I've taken from you. None! Spider-Man heads down to Ben, who says that he must carry on, clone or no clone, and that he has to tell his niece about Uncle Ben. Spider-Man realises what is happening and whisks the body away in full view of everybody, just as it disintegrates into dust. Peter finds Murray Jane, and she says that they lost the baby, but they'll face the future together as husband and wife. Oh, where do we begin with that one, eh? I can hear you groaning visibly during the synopsis. Can you groan visibly? Groaning no. audibly. Is that the Baxter building in panel one? No. Is it not? I don't think so. It could be, but I don't I doubt it. Okay. Um this entire first page, page one, we may as well start at the beginning and work forward. Uh, Ramita Jr.'s art's exceptional on this page. Well it's technically a splash. The level of detail in the artwork is wonderful. Note the Superman and Supergirl analogues in the top panel. I do like that the return of Norman is still being teased as Norman Osborn II kind of possibly recognises his grandfather. I don't recall if Norman's return was known to the readers at this point, but not the characters, or if we didn't know either. Uh, when I filled in all the gaps in my clone saga, I intend to read the whole thing from beginning to end. There is a nice subtle continuity nod here. At this point in time, Liz Allen Osborn, widow of Harry, was dating Foggy Nelson from Daredevil. Okay. That's a nice little touch that they, they acknowledge that, I thought. Um, despite being credited solely to Howard Mackey, this issue script was, according to the excellent article Life of Riley by Andrew Gullett and Glenn Greenberg, a collaborative effort on behalf of many of the staff at the time, including Greenberg, Bob Harass, Ralph Macchio and Mark Bernardo, as this was deemed a pivotal issue. Not only did it have to provide a satisfactory conclusion to the clone saga, it also had to resurrect a major supporting character from the Spider-Man mythos and essentially undo a classic Spider-Man story. This does beg the question, if the powers that were were so unsure of Mackie's ability to deliver, why did they not get somebody like Tom DeFalco to write this issue? Why get somebody to write it if you're just going to constantly rewrite his work? Maybe it wasn't a constant rewriting, maybe it's just a collaborative effort. Now, according to um, Life of Riley, this issue went through a number of drafts and rewrites. Okay. Maybe everyone wanted the perfect one, but they didn't want to get rid of what they had because it was on the right track. And did they get a perfect issue, Michael? <laughs> Page two and three, anyone who's ever been in hospital and tried to work their way around the labyrinthine substructure and nonsensical direction size feels Peter's pain. It's quite well observed. I love the guy who looks out of the window as Peter disappears above his head. Yeah. Uh, so that was quite cool. That's very Batman TV show, that, isn't it? Where he used to climb up the walls mm. and some 60s TV star like Sammy Davis Jr. would pop his head out and go, Hey, Batman! How are you doing? Oh, I'm on TV! Hi, Mom! Okay. Yeah, I thought so. Like, I quite like the doctors pointing in different directions. Yeah, when they ask him where to go and they point in different directions. Is that Josh Whedon there to the left? No, it's not. But it looks. It, it may look like him, but it's not him. I, I know it's not. Mm. Well, uh, we managed to get two pages in before Peter complains at something. That's a record, I think. Ah, uh, me. And uh, when, when was Peter going to have a kid? When did Mary Jane get pregnant? I've never heard of this before now. You've never read the Clone Saga, then? I was joking. Oh, yeah? Oh, okay. yeah fair enough. Page four, a door Folsom's face changing to a pumpkin as Peter passes out. Mm. Which I thought was a really nice artistic See, touch. that led me off, because I was thinking he was, like, 
jack-o'-lantern or something. That would have been good, mm. but alas, no. Uh, page five, the more things change. Jonah, still an arrogant ass, threatens to have the job of the person who doesn't save the lift for it. What a jerk. Fortunately, Robbie's there to pull him up on it. In attendance at the gathering, Jonah Jameson, Robbie Robertson, Glory Grant, Betty Brandt, Ben Urich, Angela Yin, Ken Ellis, Foggy Nelson, Flash Thompson and Liz Allen Osborne. Two of these things are not like the others. Let's play that Sesame Street game again. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. Ken Ellis and Angela Yin. Right. Join the supporting characters from Peter's TA days, along with people like Lance Bannon, Joy Mercado, and Sissy Ironwood, as supporting characters that nobody remembers. Yeah, I don't know who they are. Except me. I, I remember them. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sad. Page 7 and 8 is an absolutely awesome double page spread of a groggy Spider Man and a huge Norman Osborne. He's bulked up a bit while he's been in Europe, hasn't he? Mm it's in the gym. The flashbacks to Amazing Spider-Man 121 and 122 are well rendered in sepia, and Norman's goading of Spider-Man over Gwen's death is well handled. I love those two pages. I think they're awesome. There is absolutely nothing wrong with it. Well, I suppose you can argue that Norman's a bit off, in the sense that one of his shoulders slopes more than the other one, but that's just the camera angle. Oh, yeah. Isn't it? I'm going with just the camera angle. We're meant to be looking at it where... He's looking a bit to the left. Yeah, he could be at an angle, couldn't he? I'm liking it. I think that's an excellent two-page spread. Uh, page 10, completely superfluous subplot involving George Stacy's brother Arthur and Gwen's cousin Jill, who will be major characters as we go forward, but today join the aforementioned as characters nobody remembers and cares even less about. <clears throat> I acknowledge that subplots are a large part of Marvel's appeal, but this issue has so much ground to cover, even double-sized, that we don't care about any of this. Mm. We just want to get on with the main story. Yeah, well, uh, page ten. Wow. Someone thinks Spider-Man's a murderer. No one's ever thought this before. Well, it does beg the question. See, I think he was exonerated in the murder of George Stacy. I'm sure he was. I'm sure they, they resolved that dangling plot thread at some point. Okay. I can't quite remember. Uh, pages 11 and 12. Ramita Jr. turns the pages on their side here for a frankly magnificent two-page spread, which Norman exposits how he survived. And it really, really doesn't hold much water, does it? Mm. Norman says that after being left by Spider-Man, Harry stripped his body of the Green Goblin costume and bribed a coroner to fake an autopsy report. I think that was established in the original Clone Saga. Right. Because nobody knew that Norman was the Green Goblin, because Harry had done all of this. So that's okay. just following on established continuity. In between doing all of this, however, Norman woke up, left the morgue, presumably naked, because yep. he's in the morgue, mm-hmm. found a vagrant... Killed him with a copy of Fantastic Four Omnibus Number One, copyright Stephen Lacey. Nicked his clothes, carried him back to the morgue, dumped his body in the morgue locker with Norman's name on it, and then left. Yep. Ignoring the difficulty of getting out of the morgue drawer in the first place, which I don't doubt because Norman's got enhanced goblin strength, so you could probably do it. Mm-hmm. How did he get out of the morgue, kill a vagrant, and bring his body back without being seen? He wants to see a naked guy. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> that's seeing thing. ugly naked guys. Not my problem. No, that's it. They saw him, turned away, went oh. They saw him and saw. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. dingly dangly, dude. Put your pumpkin bombs away. <clears throat> Talking. <laughs> oh dear me. In Life of Riley, which is an excellent article, 
that you should seek out if you've not got a copy. In fact, if you've not got a copy of it, let me know and I'll email you because it's great. Uh, Greenberg asserts that Mackie really needed assistance with the continuity of this scene and prepared a timeline of what Norman had done and how he'd survived for Mackie that Mackie promptly, yeah. promptly went on to not read. Okay. Excellent. Those doing your research. Mm. Uh, a lot of the dialogue was rewritten before it was sent to John Jr. for Pensley. So I mentioned that a lot of that went on, didn't I? Mm. Page 13. It's a nice touch that Halloween party at the Bugle is decorated with webs and pumpkins. So, uh, I thought that was really cute. Uh, Little nice cute thing. Is it not <coughs> to, to represent the... the uh, the eternal struggle between good and evil. Between Spider-Man and Green Goblin. Or alternatively, it's a Halloween party, pumpkins and webs. Well, Maybe we're reading too much into it. Green Goblin sets it all up, didn't he? He did. That's very true. So it's, so the Green Goblin's got a sense of whimsy. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> Page 14 is also a nice scene between Flash and Liz. Uh, Flash is one of those characters that was characterised for a while as being lost out of high school and this is something that a lot of people who are popular in school face in real life over here school is something to be tolerated and survived it's not really a big deal that America seems to make of it and we do feel a little bit of sympathy for Flash a lot of really good character development has been done with Flash Thompson over the years and the undoing of this was one of the worst things about the Burn Mackie reboot also I think I would have liked seeing Flash and Liz get back together uh, this is also one of the first of what would become many and then very boring references to how young everybody is, the first attempts at de-aging the characters. In the Clone Saga, it was established that Spider-Man had been around for 2.5 years before the events of Amazing Spider-Man 150, and Ben had wandered America for five years, establishing that Spider-Man had been around in total for seven and a half years. If Peter was bitten by the radioactive spider when he was 15 to 16 years old, this puts him at around 23 when this story takes place. So, if Ben Riley really is Peter Parker, then how come we've been following the life of Peter Parker ever since Amazing Fancy and there's been no mention of another Peter or a clone? And also, why is Ben's name not Peter if he is the real Peter? Oh, and if Peter really was the, real, uh, the clone, then how come we saw him get the spider powers in the first place? And do writers really think that all readers are so stupid that they'll accept change that has more holes in it than Murder, She Wrote? <laughs> and then we get a plot twist which is exactly what we've known all along. Peter Parker really is the real Peter Parker. Well, I'm glad they told me that because up until now, I always thought it was Ben Riley who didn't know the difference between a cha-cha and a waltz. <laughs> well, your rant is, is funny. However, let's take those points in order. Okay. Ben Riley is the real Peter Parker. How come we've been following him? We haven't. Have we not? The Clone Saga happened in issue 150 of Amazing Spider-Man. The Clone Saga postulates yeah. that the Spider-Man that we followed from Amazing Fantasy 15 to Amazing Fantasy 150 was, was Ben Riley, yeah, right? Okay, not Peter Parker. Right. Following the Clone Saga, the the Jackal one. Yes, right. the original one that ended in Amazing 150. Peter Parker thought he was the real Spider-Man. So there was a and switcheroo on, yes, you didn't see. And carried on with Peter's life. Okay. Ben Riley woke up thinking he was the clone. Right. And took the name Ben after Uncle Ben. Yeah. And Riley, May Parker's maiden name, right. and hit the road, trying to find his own identity. Okay. As the clone saga would progress, Ben Riley would find out that in actuality he was the real deal. And the Peter Parker that had been living his life since Amazing Spider-Man 150 was, in fact, the clone. This essentially destroyed Peter's life, okay. as you would expect. 
And what happened was the writers did have every intention of having Peter Parker and Murray Jane Watson leave the books, go off, retire, and have the baby, and okay. Ben Riley took over the story as Spider-Man. Right. So they're not really pulling the wool over your eyes. They're not trying to make you think that you're stupid. This, it's just this was all accepted. Later on. Yes. Then what happened was there was a change in editorial regime who said, Ben Riley can't be Spider-Man. Peter Parker's Spider-Man. Okay. Ben Riley's not Spider-Man. Okay. I honestly think if they could have found a way to give Ben Riley Peter Parker's name, we would still be reading Ben Riley's adventures today. I think that's what ultimately scuppered it, that they couldn't give him Peter's name. Because okay. there was a whole question, well, if you're giving Peter Parker's name, people are going to say, well, where's Mary Jane? And okay. why are you not working at the Daily Bugle anymore? If you explain that. How, well, how do you explain it? How do you explain that Murray Jane's now off living with somebody who looks exactly like Peter Parker, but isn't Peter Parker? You explain it exactly <coughs> like that. How? By by having Peter or the the clone Peter and Murray Jane go bugger off and and have the baby, and it being Ben Riley, Peter Parker going, I'm Spider Man now. Yeah, but how would he be Peter Parker? He okay. They switch identities. They switch passports. So Ben Riley goes and lives with Mary Jane. And Peter Parker forgets that he's married to Mary Jane and has a child on the way and goes back to being Spider-Man. Yeah. No. No. That wouldn't okay, work. Okay. Um, ben Riley changes his name to Peter Parker and carries on living with Aunt May. <coughs> and Peter Parker changes his name to Ben Riley. Aunt May's dead. Okay. He, he, At this point. He doesn't have any money, so he lives in a house. Um... You can't do it, can you? This is the problem they're faced with this story. If you hadn't got married, this yeah, would have been well, perfect. The, this storyline came about personally because they were married. Right. And they wanted to get rid of the marriage. Quisada wanting to get rid of the marriage is not a new thing. Okay. Marvel have been struggling with this marriage since it happened, essentially. And it's my argument, my long argument has been, people argue growth change, yada, 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 fine, whatever. Okay, I'll go with you on that one. But the minute they got married, they had no idea what to do with them at all go back and read all those Michelini McFarlane books again if you're listening to this go on go and read them I'll wait for you I'll be here when you come back go and read them all they don't know what to do with them at all they have not got a clue A. how to write a married couple and B. what to do with them after they're married you write a story (coughs) where he almost dies and it scares her and she sits down and thinks that she can't marry him worrying that she's every night when he goes out he could die so they decide to get a divorce and just be best buds don't want to divorce Spider-Man if a married Spider-Man seems older divorce Spider-Man seems even older apparently really? yeah okay what about he says I'm 23 let's divorce nope does he still seem old then? nobody wanted them to get divorced this was the problem they had are they trying to set some example to children that you shouldn't get no they just didn't want Peter Parker being divorced well, don't get him married in the first place if you don't know what to do with And him. there you go. Thank you very much. All right, then. Page 17 of this illustrious issue, of which we were talking, is fantastic. It's a full-page slot. Slot? Dan slot? Mm. It's a full-page shot of the Green Goblin. Um, Ramita Jr.'s never really had a chance to draw the Green Goblin before, certainly not the original, and he puts... Every single page in the back of the net. The Goblin's dialogue is actually really quite good here, which is odd for this issue, because some of the dialogue's a bit ropey. 
Um, ben Riley's beneath him, a thing, a prop that served its time and to be discarded as such. Norman's reason for coming back almost works within the context of this dialogue. Despite numerous setbacks, Peter Parker has always been, at heart, an optimistic character, and Norman's inability to crush Peter's resolve, despite the myriad setbacks he's thrown his way, are a testament to his character and to Norman's. What Norman sees as a weakness, Peter's complete inability to just roll over and die, is actually his greatest strength. Right, I despise your persistence and naive optimism. Yes. What optimism? Peter's not optimistic at all. In fact, he takes every opportunity he can to whine about how much his life sucks. Yes, but he does, but ultimately he's optimistic. Ultimately. Why? Just because he takes all the punches and carries on? Yes. Because that's what life is. Life is taking everything it throws at you and getting back up. Is that being optimistic or is that just carrying on living? Arguably both. Okay, then. Possibly. Page 18, 19, by God, Junior's pulling all the stops out on this story. His use of double-page spreads and full-page splashes and sideways pages is simply superb storytelling, more alliteration. Whatever you think of the story, there's no doubt that the magnificence of the art carries it through. Unless you're going to disagree with me about the art in this one as no, well. I like the art. Yeah, the art's brilliant. Page 20. The conversation between Peter and Ben is short, but quite telling. In the reading of this issue, we, like Peter, have no idea what's happened to Murray Jane, and the memory of the last confrontation between Spider-Man and the original Green Goblin looms large. Is this another case of history repeating? There's also the very real implied threat in Peter's voice as he takes off after the Goblin. If he's hurt Murray Jane, he says before the sentence trails off. There was the real idea when you were reading this initially that they were going to kill Murray Jane off. Yeah. Because they'd failed miserably at making a new young single Peter Parker by introducing Ben Riley, which was the whole point of the exercise to begin with. So as you're reading this, your thinking is, well, the only way they're going to get back to that is to kill her. You've got to kill her off. Because then you're back where you were. You're back at a single Peter Parker living his life, but you've killed off Murray Jane. But imagine the whining he'd do after that. Well, see. Um, over at the bugle, uh, Jonah's face, when he sees Norman swooping, is priceless. Tellingly, Jonah recognises Osborne's voice through the mask, which, whilst a, a pretty neat character moment, does make you wonder. Why does he not know who's Spider-Man? Yeah, why has he never recognised Peter Parker's voice? Mm. Ostensibly, the mask muffles the voice, but that's, that's bogus, that, isn't it? Yeah. That never works. If you've watched a real live-action Spider-Man TV show or film, it's like, that's Tobey Maguire's voice. <laughs> Especially Tobey Maguire's whiny voice. Yeah. Um, the art, again, in the fight scenes is just phenomenal. To this story's credit, there's never been a more public or frenetic battle between the original Green Goblin and Spider-Man. The Goblin has pumpkin bombs exploding left and right, and Spider-Man is just a blur, avoiding them. It's wonderful. I think that Spider-Man is taking this battle so seriously, his customary wisecracks are kept to a minimum. And then on page 28... The panel of a beaten Spider-Man, his costume in tatters, refusing to go down is simply awe-inspiring, especially when contrasted with the Goblin's utter disbelief with his tenacity. Uh, The art's great. Every single page in this is worth framing. Well, except maybe that page. I may cut it up and put on more. You can do you can have this. Don't care what you do with it. I've got another issue for a dollar. Page 30, Ben Riley really steps up. 
Clone or no clone, he very nearly sacrifices himself to save Flash Thompson and vows to return to help Spider-Man, despite obvious internal bleeding. I do like that even now the story is still playing it close to the chest as if Ben is the clone or not. The Goblin has said he's a clone, but the Green Goblin could be lying. And there's so many claims and counterclaims in this entire story thus far. The reader doesn't know what to believe, which is this story's main strength in that he could still go in any direction. There is, I thought, a slight plot error here. It's established in Amazing Spider-Man 418 that Peter and Ben's Spider-Sense was nullified by Mendel Straw. This is why Peter's Spider-Sense doesn't warn him about Dr. Folsom at the beginning of the issue. Right. right? And it's why Ben's does what he does at the end because Spider-Man's Spider-Sense doesn't warn him that the Goblin Slider's coming at it. So okay. Ben jumps in front of it because Ben sees it. If that's the case, how does Ben use his Spider-Sense to find Norman's pumpkin bombs? Which it quite clearly says that's what he's doing um. on page 29. All the people that read this issue then rewrite and the back and forth between the editors and nobody caught that. Maybe they couldn't see for looking. Or do you think they're just glossing past that at this point? Maybe. Yeah, possibly. Maybe they're not so bored of edits and rewrites. It's, it is, it's always possible. Page 32, page 33. In a comic replete with magnificent artwork, another prime example. The two-page spread of Spider-Man kicking Goblin in the gut is surpassed only by the next page where an unmasked Spider-Man socks Norman in the face. The dialogue quoted above is slightly spurious in my opinion. In Life of Riley, Glenn Greenberg asserts this dialogue came from Bob Harris. The stuff about it's never been about Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. It's always been about Norman Osborn and Peter Parker. That's quite wrong. Yeah, see, well, like him, I have a few issues with it, in that Spider-Man and the Green Goblin were mortal enemies before either discovered who they were. Mm. However, where I disagree with Greenberg, who essentially agreed with us that the dialogue seemed a bit off, it's not about Peter and Norman, it's about Spider-Man and the Goblin. My argument is it became about Peter and Norman. It couldn't help but become about the man behind the masks. Without that knowledge, Norman wouldn't have been able to kidnap and kill Gwen. Without that knowledge, Harry Osborn's story wouldn't have been so tragic. And without that knowledge, the clone saga wouldn't have had an ending. So for that alone, mm. it's probably always been about Peter and Norman. And then page 35. The writers and editors really want us to believe Ben's dead, don't they? Yep. They, they beat him, they blow him up, he's then impaled... And then dropped a good 50, possibly 100 stories before crashing through the roof of a parked car. He's dead, Jim. He's double dead. Yeah, and it makes no sense. On page 30, Ben clearly says that first he's taking the Osborne building down. Then he'll go and help Peter. Mm -hmm. But then here, he shows up still in possession of the pumpkin bombs and a line of dialogue says that the one with the web shooters would be better suited to going over and blowing up the Osborne building. Why? At the very beginning of this issue, yeah. we saw Peter Parker dancing across New York just fine without his web shooters. And we've seen him do it numerous times mm. when his web fluids run out or whatever. We've seen him bounce across the, the streets, haven't we? He's more than capable of doing it. Why does why's Ben not do it? Speed and momentum for the <coughs> explosion? He could easily do it. Okay. I, th I think he could easily do that. Uh, the obvious answer is that Ben hadn't shown up, then he wouldn't have died. He could have gone over there and because he wasn't swinging got blown up. He could have done, yes. That would have worked as well. Especially, again, given the amount of people this script went through. Do you think 
they, they made their own little book called How Can We Kill Off Ben Riley? Yeah, we has to die. <laughs> we don't care. Um, we're not doing a vote like Batman did. No, we're not doing a vote like they did with Robin. <laughs> um, you've got the thing as well. Peter, Spider-Man, throws the bag of pumpkin bombs right at the Green Goblin and they all start exploding. Mm-hmm. So it does beg the question, did he plan on killing him? Maybe. Personally, I think he'd have been fully justified in doing that. Maybe he snapped in this issue. No, it's very possible. He's pushed him further than he's ever gone before. In Life of Riley, Greenberg argues that Spider-Man knows about Osborn's accelerated healing and knows he won't die. Right. Which feels like backseat driving to me. But mm-hmm. it's an explanation I can live with. No prizes have been won for less. Yeah. But I still think he was well justified in just chucking the bombs at him and going, smile, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Blowing him up. And finally, page 39. In case you didn't think he was dead already. In case you didn't think he was dead already, he disintegrates into nothing. Which is quite final as these things go. Isn't it? Mm. Um, with the death of Ben... The Clone Saga finally comes to an end. And after this, for years, Marvel would just try and brush his, um, his remains under the carpet. Mentions of Ben Riley became few and far between, and the Spider title started going through the motions, much as they'd done since 1988 and before the start of the Clone storyline. Whatever your opinions on the story, and all the criticisms of it are valid, it was a real attempt to do something different with the character. It both succeeded and it failed. For me, it gave my Peter Parker an ending to his story. You heard me witter on last week, that, and I've long argued that Spider-Man, and by extension Peter Parker, is a character that works best in the milieu of high school or college. Spider-Man needs to be a character that is, to a large extent, still learning the ropes and trying to find his way in the world. A married, successful Peter Parker, and we've no reason to believe Peter wouldn't be successful once he became an adult, is the end of Spider-Man's story. It's not the middle chapter or the beginning of a new era. It's the end. It's a Spider-Man that's paid off the guilt he felt over the death of his uncle and committed himself fully to the most important responsibility a man can undertake, being a husband and a father. The Clone Saga, despite its faults, gave me an ending to Peter Parker's story that I felt was appropriate and proper, yet still gave the character a new lease of life in the form of Ben Riley. And it's hard to ignore that this tale pisses all over that. See, I, I quite disagree with the whole Spider-Man thing. Why? Because having read it from the beginning of Straczynski's run to currently, I think that Spider-Man should be an ongoing, how he grows up. But if you're going to do that, Spider-Man. this goes to what we were talking about last year, if you're going to do that, there are some people who say, yeah, we'll get him to 35 and then stop aging him. I think we should just keep aging him. So, I see, I have no problem with that. Yeah. If you're going to do it, do it properly. Do it so that he celebrates 40th, 50th birthday, him and Murray Jane have kids. Do all that and have it end. But Marvel's not going to do that. They're not going to end the book. It's going to keep reinventing yeah. it. So whereas if this was like Asterix mm-hmm. or something like that, they, they would end the strip and then the books would just be constantly repeated for new kids and new readers as you go along. Yeah. Monthly comic books don't work like that. Okay. So you, you have got your choice then. Do we continue to age him and ultimately reach a dead end? Or do we kind of keep him in this nebulous no-man's land that they're in for a long time? And what's your choice? It's a comic. You don't have to have it real time, really. No, well, this is the point that I'm trying to make. Where did Brent Bendis come up with this idea that Peter Parker was nearly 40? Well, I totted up all the years (laughs) that it was in books and all the years that they'd mentioned stuff and I divided it by the amount of Christmases they'd had. No! 
Bendis has said he's 40. Bendis said that he'd worked out that Peter Parker must be nearing 40. How did he work out? Pseudoscience comic math. And I don't know, especially seeing as we were quite clearly in the Clone Saga, given that he'd been Spider-Man for two and a half years and Ben had been wandering the Earth for five. Mm-hmm. So it had been seven and a half years since he was bitten by the radioactive spider. He was bitten by the spider when he was 50. How does that equal nearly 40? Um, maybe he's nearly 40 now. Well, he's not now, because they de-aged him again oh, after yeah. Brand New Day. I do, I honestly do think that if the Marvel Brain Trust at the time had managed to find a workable way of getting Ben to have the name Peter Parker, and they do talk about that in that Life of Riley article, I think we'd still be reading about Ben and not Peter. Yeah. Even though he would be called Peter. I think that would have sold it better to the people. Um... Today, this is still hugely controversial, and Ben Riley still has his fans. Finally acknowledging that the story happened, they've released a series of handsome trade paperbacks of the story, and Scarlet Spider, a key character in the overall narrative, now has an ongoing book. The Clone Saga's legacy lives on. They're going to uh, tie them in together and then kill off Peter Parker and have him Ben Riley. And have Kane take over. That's just, yeah. That would be quite good. Um, but this leads us to the final page of the story. <coughs> page 40. God, this ending's rushed, isn't it? Just a bit. After all of that, we get a one-page epilogue. We get no clue as to what the Goblin did to Murray Jane, if he did, in fact, have anything to do with the loss of the baby, and no real resolution for Ben. It's very rushed and very disappointing. There was a bit where I didn't know what had happened, so I had to read this a couple of times, and then had a helpful hand from Straczynski to make me realise the baby died. Because there's a bit in one more day where the, the child talks to him... In the yeah, they don't make that obvious at all, do they? Quest, and they the... tease in future issues of Spider-Man that Norman Osborn's got the baby, right. but it turns out to be May Parker, who's not dead after all. Okay, but the May Parker an who act- died that was, was an actress hired, yeah. who was act who was hired apparently to die. It's a great role. <laughs> well, actors, actors love a good death scene. Don't they? Well, so. only not when they really die. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, the trade paperback collection of this story for a long time the only Clone Saga collected material now sadly out of print has a couple of extra pages it'll be interesting to see if they include these extra pages when they get to that point in the trade paperbacks yeah Yeah. the first is a seven page sequence showing how Norman captured Ben and revealed him to be the clone it's fun but inconsequential the two epilogues however give the story a little bit more breathing space to accommodate the rushed ending. The first epilogue is Ben's wake, as people come to express their grief. Sadly, half of this quite touching scene is wasted with a character called Jimmy Six, another supporting character most people don't remember and even less care about. It does end with a nice scene of Spider-Man scattering Ben's ashes from the Brooklyn Bridge. How Peter gathered up all those ashes isn't quite explained. The second epilogue concerns Norman's resurrection and makes it quite clear he isn't dead. Both are not really necessary, but they're nice to read in any case. Taken on its own merits, this is actually quite a good issue. The problem is that the conclusion of such a major storyline can't help but be a little bit disappointing. Ben's death reads as the editorially mandated stunt that it was, and not an organic outgrowth of the story. And the ending is horribly rushed, as this saw print. The trade paperback fixes that a little bit. I'm very interested in what you thought of it, Michael. Well, since you've not read any of the Clone Saga, have you? So that's why I can't really say much about it. I can argue about how stupid I think Ben Riley and Peter Parker and clones and who was a real clone, what happened to a baby and Norman Osborn and Aunt May and all that as much. So I've not read all of it, so... I've read the key points. 
Fair enough. I, I would read all of it. if we, When we get it up. If I, I can still recover from New Krypton. <laughs> I've not got there yet. I'm working on it. You've but read it all, though. I have. I'm still working on coming... It, um, I'm still in rehab. I oh, have, I see. Yeah. You're still recovering? Uh-huh. Okay, fair enough. So I may read Spider-Man when I can recover from that. I would be interested in, in hearing your thoughts on the It would song. be New Krypton and Grounded. I will come down every month. Yes, this is very disappointing, Father. Yeah. Now you know what we went through reading it originally. Uh, the Clone Saga was, however, far from over. Really? Tom DeFalco would take the idea that the Parker child was born happily and run with it in his alternative universe book Spider-Girl, oh, where yeah. May Parker, Sion of Mary Jane and Peter, was a basketball star who in her teens inherited her father's powers. With supporting characters like little Naomi Osborne and lots of nods to the clone saga, this was the true her to the clone mantle, and for a while one of the best Spider-Man titles on the market. I got bored of it. Scarlet Spider's recently resurfaced in his own book, and the trades continue to be released and sell well. This book was a double-sized issue and featured a number of really cool adverts. Super Nintendo offered a Marvel superheroes game, which Michael seems to think was Glenn Fabry artwork. It looks like Glenn Fabry. It, uh, it has a look of Glenn Fabry. I'll give you that. It there's was a the Star 90s, Wars. It could have been Glenn Fabry. It, it could have been Glenn Fabry. Yeah. Um, and it, there's a Star Wars customizable card game being nice. released. Nice. Mile High Comics has a full-page ad, but it's not as fun as the ones in Nightfall. Crash Bandicoot. Yeah. Uh, Marvel Online, part of AOL, was just getting started. America Online, you don't even know what that is, do you? AOL? Yeah. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, It's like when Scott keeps keep saying, I, I bet you don't know what cassettes are and videos. I'm like, yes, I do. You had lots of videos. I still have some. You do? QVC offered a collectibles hour with guest star John Romita Sr. And oddly, there's an ad for Revelations in the Spider books, the last chapter of which you just read. Yeah. So that struck me as a bit strange. There was still a bullpen bulletins page plugging the Spider titles post-clones and a profile of Kurt Busiek. Dressed up as Galactus. Dressed up as Galactus, yeah. There's an interesting three-page interview puff piece about the new Daredevil book and the Essentials. Yes, the Joe Kelly one. Mm -hmm. And the Essentials have just launched here with Wolverine... Volume 1. It had to be Wolverine, didn't it? It, it was either Wolverine or Spider-Man. Yeah. Well, I think Essential Spider-Man came out first. Yeah. Essential Spider-Man was already out with, at that with point. the two volumes that had those covers which didn't carry on. Yeah, and then they redid the trade dress. Yeah. And then just to annoy me, they've redone it again. Ah, well that's our three spin-off Spider-Man books. Enjoy that, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> Is that alright? They, they weren't bad. Next time, we're going to be looking at three more classics from the 80s, because well, the 80s are awesome. One more classic. You've not read them yet, so you have no opinion. Oh. Amazing Spider-Man 248, Amazing Spider-Man 252, and Amazing Spaniel... I probably have them, yeah. You've boobs on Spider-Man. That's just sad. And Amazing Spider-Man Annual 18. You have ruined the classic yeah. drawing boobs on spider <laughs> Do you know? Don't let anyone tell you differently. You are the greatest dad. <laughs> Drawing boobs on a classic Spider-Man issue. Yes. Yes. Or an idiot. Depends on your point no, of no, view. No, let's go for greatest dad. Okay, fair enough. Uh, we'll be back next week for that. We hope you will be here. Say goodnight, Grayson. Goodnight, Grayson. Bye-bye.
Comics is that the devil will make work for idle hands to do production. And all opinions expressed by Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money for this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday at apleyland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the second name. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeksalloneword.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Thank you.